You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Each month, over 80,000 people download podcasts produced from the fevered mind of Royfield Brown. They cover a gamut of topics, like maps, politics, American presidents, history, the archers, Formula One, Jamaican culture, and Englishness. Go to wherever you get your podcast and type in Royfield Brown to discover a new favorite podcast today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, a little note before we start this week's podcast. Unfortunately, I had a little bit of a snafu with the sound. The sound was coming through a different mic source and not my normal podcast mic. Please forgive the various bumps and bleeps through it and uh, the lack of quality on my mic but hopefully it won't disrupt your enjoyment too much of the episode ladies and gentlemen please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome. My name is Royfield Brown. I'm sat back in Oakland. Please forgive me that this is the first time this year that I've actually done a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. Yes, you're probably saying, but got an episode just about a week plus or so that was actually done before christmas i'm going to try and stick to fingers crossed doing at least three podcasts a month i was about to say one a week but that's going to be a little bit too much of a stretch but let's try and get out three a month and i think we can just about do that now today i'm speaking to leslie herod she's the first openly gay black person who has been elected to the colorado state legislature she was first elected in 2016 and most recently has been re-elected for a fourth and final term to the Colorado State House of Representatives, representing House District 8. During the 2021 legislative session, Herrick was appointed to the state's coveted Joint Budget Committee. During the previous session, Herod was the Vice Chair of the Judiciary Committee and now she's running to be the mayoral candidate in Denver, and this election will be on April 4, 2023. Leslie Herod, welcome to Mid-Atlantic. Thanks so much for having me. No, listen, it's excellent and somewhat of a privilege to have somebody who's actually running for office on the podcast. 
really simple question first off. Leslie, why should people vote for you? I am excited to be here and to run to be Denver's next mayor. If you could believe it, our great Queen City has never had a female mayor before in the history of our city. And so I will be running to be the first female mayor of our Queen City. But serving the legislature has really guided me through my path as an elected official. But when COVID hit, we realized that there was so much happening that was not affecting the people in Denver. On the Joint Budget Committee and managing a $40 billion budget for the state of Colorado, I was able to direct funding specifically for folks who look like me, people of color, lower income, people in my city. And as we look to see how these policies and laws were implemented, we realized that our local partner in city government in Denver was not ready to step up and to support the people of our city. And since then, we have seen our city slowly turn and we are at a turning point now, a point where we could, where we have the ability, I should say, to decide who we are as a city, to address some of our biggest issues like our unhoused crisis, our affordability crisis that we're in right now and ensure that Denver goes in the right direction. And I'm looking forward to rolling up my sleeves and getting it done. Just 85 days until the Colorado primaries and the race for mayor is heating up. There are now 11 candidates, the latest to throw her name in, Democratic State Representative Leslie Harrod. She made the announcement yesterday. Nine News reporter Darius Johnson is live outside the city and county building. And Darius, if elected, she could be the most progressive mayor Denver has ever had. Now, regardless of what Herod has to say about being progressive, I think we can go into her background, and I think that kind of speaks for itself. Herod is the first black person of the LGBTQ community to be elected at the State House since her time there in 2016. She claims victories such as the 2020 Colorado Police Reform Bill and the recently passed fentanyl bill, Gary. So definitely a lot of movement that has been made over the years that she has served, and she's hoping to kind of do the same if she's elected. Leslie Harrod, she is a native of the Park Hill community, and she made her bid for mayor on Thursday. That makes Harrod the third woman to enter her name in the race after City Councilwoman Debbie Ortega and longtime CEO for the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce, Kelly Broth. For her mayoral campaign, Harrod is focused on homelessness. She says homeless sweeps are a failed policy and don't help get people off the streets. And she says Denver needs more affordable housing to prevent people from being run out of the city. Leslie, let's go all the way back. Tell us about where exactly you grew up. Tell us about the young Leslie before politics. Oh, the young Leslie. That is a great question. So I was actually born in Nuremberg, Germany. My mom was an officer in the military and we traveled all around the world. I loved going to new places and meeting new people, immersing myself in families and communities that look very differently than mine and realizing our differences actually are are beautiful and make us who we are. And so that's how I was, I guess, raised in that kind of environment. My dad also lived in the South, also spent a lot of time in Water Valley, Mississippi, small rural town that you probably never heard of in Mississippi alongside of down in Louisiana. And so I've traveled a lot. I traveled the world. It shapes the way that I look at policy today. We came to Colorado when my mom retired out of Fort Carson when I was in high school. And I graduated high school down in Colorado Springs. Then I went up to Boulder for college. I'm a buff. I decided to run for student government then. Didn't know we had the largest student government in the nation. And by the time I graduated, I was the president of the University Student Union and ran a $36 billion budget. And that's how I got started in politics. And then what happened in 2016, or let's say prior to 2016, where you decided that you needed to step up and to represent Colorado in the state legislature? What gave you that push? 
Yeah, it's interesting. When I graduated college, I graduated during a recession. So I was working at Mac and 24-Hour Fitness and just trying to make ends meet. I graduated. I did. I th- thought I did everything right, had all my extracurriculars. Like I said, I was in student government and everything else. And I couldn't find a job. Definitely not the job I thought I should have, which might have been, in hindsight, a little bit, <laughs> a little bit bigger than I probably needed at the time. And so I remember one day going to the state capitol in Denver and just saying, I'm Leslie, I can start tomorrow putting my resume on someone's desk that happened to be the Speaker of the House. I had no idea it was the Speaker of the House, if I'm being honest with you, and ended up getting a job as an aide and an intern. And that started my career in politics, but also I think it it shows you who Denver is. The doors are always open here in Denver, and that's why I love it so much. And despite all my travel, have chosen to make this city my home. And since then, I took very different roles. I was our governor's senior policy advisor. I worked for a nonprofit fighting for LGBTQ. I would say that I was at the Capitol and didn't think that I could be in office, didn't think I could run for office. In fact, the only Black woman serving at the time was Rosemary Marshall, Representative Rosemary Marshall, who I was an aide for. And she served alone in a body of 100 legislators. I didn't think that was something that I could do. And being someone who was gay and not having any out gay people of color in office, it didn't seem like that was the fit for me. And so I thought I was going to be behind the scenes. But instead, I started working for Obama's 2012 reelection campaign. Colorado was a swing state at the time. We were able, thankfully, to the president and the first lady out in Colorado quite often. And I remember I fought to have him in my neighborhood, in my community in Northeast Denver at City Park. And in that moment, when I was with him in the park and he turned to me and asked me, what are the young folks thinking about the race? Where are they at? And like, once I found my words, I was able to have a conversation with him. And finally, he asked me when I was going to run. And I realized in my about to make a statement, oh, I'm black, I'm gay, I can't run, that I was talking to the first black president, right? And that the limitations that I thought I had were not real because obviously he could be the first black president. I could definitely run for state house and win. I could definitely serve in my community in elected office. And in fact, my community deserves someone who understood the community, who looks like us, and who would fight for them every single day. And so that was the moment I decided to run for office. And I started my campaign about a year later. And I guess the rest is history. Uh, Leslie, what, what you just said there paints a really kind of like quite powerful picture. And uh, I like the fact that you said that you caught yourself talking to the first non-white president of the United States and you're about <laughs> to say, but you couldn't run. How important is it that you identify as being, overtly identify as being a woman, a black woman and gay? Are we not post people having to say these things? Oh, no, we're definitely not posted, especially when we see the murders of Black men continuing to happen at the hands of law enforcement. We're not post-identification, right? And so for me, you when you see me, you know I'm Black, right? When you see me, you know I'm a woman. You might not know that I'm gay. And for me, it's important that our young people see and know that you don't have to live in the shadows anymore. Quite frankly, too many people, I know there were gay folks, Black people, that served in elected office in Colorado before I got here, but they couldn't be out. So I stand on their shoulders and I I owe it to them to be out and to say who I am. And because I present in the way that I present, and that's a privilege, I've got to acknowledge the fact that I'm gay, I'm cisgender, but that we can take these roles and we can take these roles, not despite who we are, but because of who we are. And I got to tell you, when I ran for office, I've been in too many gay bars, doing too many things to pretend like I'm someone I'm not. And that's just not what I was going to do. 
You've championed a variety of progressive policies, including closing the gender pay gap in Colorado, expanding access to health care and access to reproductive rights. What's your most proud legislative accomplishment? That is that is always a tough question because I'm so proud of a lot of the work that we were able to do. Passing the Law Enforcement Integrity Act was definitely a highlight of my career, and it was one of the most powerful moments I remember in my career. Because in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and Elijah McClain, just days after we saw the murder of George Floyd all play out on our smartphones across the country and across the world, we were able to pass a comprehensive police accountability bill that ended qualified immunity for law enforcement, that required body cams, a duty to intervene, that changed the standard for use of force all in one bill that we passed within 16 days. That was a moment I never thought I would see. And that was a moment where I think the power of holding elected office became all too real for me. So that was definitely one of the bills that I'm extremely proud of. But additionally, it's the work that I've done not being a legislator, but really understanding how to make this system that we live in today work for us. I ran a ballot measure called Caring for Denver. My sister, I should back up, she was incarcerated in and out of incarceration for 30 years, predominantly around mental health issues and substance misuse issues. She never really got a chance. She's first incarcerated around 16 years old never really got a chance to to blossom and to bloom in our society. And so many people have fallen in that path. And as a society, we throw people away and that's wrong. And so I took off my legislative hat because what we were doing wasn't working. And I ran a ballot measure called Caring for Denver. And we asked Denverites to put a 25 cents on a $100 sales tax increase. So twenty-five every time you spend $100, $0.25 cents of it goes to mental health and substance misuse. And we created a foundation that funds organizations right here in our city to do the work to make sure that people have the help they need. I now run that foundation. I'm the chair of it. We've given out over $100 million to 188 organizations in just three years. We've created alternative police models like STAR, Support Team Assisted Response, where now when you call 911 in Denver for someone who has a mental health crisis, you get an EMT and a mental health professional modeled after the Cahoots model in Eugene, Oregon. I am so proud every day when I see the star van come on a call and I see the help that they're providing people who truly need it. Call me weird, but I love a good ride along, like love them. I've been on ride alongs across the world, in Amsterdam, in Canada, in Boston, and even right here in Denver. And what I've learned is that people call the cops for a number of reasons. Anything from a lost cat to a neighbor they just want to know more about to maybe a loved one or a stranger having a mental health crisis. But really, at the heart of it, people call 911 because they just don't know what else to do. What I've learned, though, is that sometimes when you call 911, it can make a bad situation even worse. Maybe a loved one is arrested or they're placed on a 72-hour hold. There are fines and fees and criminal charges. And sometimes calling 911 can be the beginning of the end of someone's life. Now, you might think I'm here to talk about abolishing the police. Not exactly. Actually here to talk about a different solution. A solution that takes care of a person, keeps our community safe, and helps the police to focus on what they do best, enforcing the law. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How difficult did the defund the police campaign make that initiative for you to start in Denver? I wouldn't say it was difficult because I had the foundation. So it would have been much more difficult if I didn't have the money. And let me back up and say that the chief of police had asked so many people, including the mayor, to go out and see the CAHOOTS model in Eugene, Oregon, multiple times. And for years, people said we couldn't do it, said it couldn't happen in a major city like Denver. Couldn't happen. Eugene, Oregon was too different. And when I went out and saw it with a group of amazing people, like the nine, the head of 911, who also is a Black woman who was leading the charge at the time. And when we saw how CAHOOTS worked, we knew we were going to have to do it in Denver. So I was grateful to have built the relationships that we could get it done so long as we had the funding mechanism to make it happen. Caring for Denver provided that funding mechanism. And here's the secret. It only cost $200,000 to get star up and going in Denver. We had to pay for a salary for EMT, a salary for a mental health first responder, and we had to retrofit a van. That's all it took. And we launched during the summer of protests. That very same time I was passing our Police Accountability Act was the same time Star was working downtown. And we had zero negative instances on Star. We got people help, the help they needed, and now are able to be across the city. And we are a multi-million dollar agency now within the city and county. You're running to be mayor. Be honest with me. What are your chances of becoming Denver's next mayor? It's interesting. I'm definitely in the in the front of the pack, according to all of the polls. Denver is a progressive city. Denver is a city that wants to elect someone who is going to really create true change. True change. That's been very clear in every single one of the polls. But it's not going to be easy. My opponents are well-funded. And they are running campaigns in the millions of dollars. And I've told people I'm okay being outspent two to one. I'm not okay being outspent five to one. And so it's important that we bring folks in to support the campaign. But I will say this is our first year that Denver has ever had public financing of campaigns. That's what I I wanted to ask you about that. I wanted to ask about that, about the Fair Elections Fund, which means that there is some kind of match funding of what candidates actually raise with the public purse. And that means that 17 people are actually running to be mayor. Tell us about, let's say, the top four. Give us a sense of who you're running against 
and and what they bring to the table. Sure. So the Fair Election Fund means that every donation that we get from Denver is matched nine times. But we're also taking financial contribution limits of $500. And so for me, that has very much helped my campaign. One of my opponents is a female who ran the chamber, the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce. She has millions of dollars in a independent expenditure campaign. So separate dollars a pack, if you will, that is funding her campaign. Um, additionally, we have uh, a man who has run for public office multiple times before, including governor, has not won, and so has been able to utilize those networks, resources, and roll over some of those dollars into also a separately funded PAC, i.e. expenditure campaign. And so those are the front runners, or excuse me, the people who are in the PAC with me. And they do have networks with deeper pockets. But the great thing is that I have the people. So I have more donors, individual donors, than anyone else in this race right now. Also the first to qualify for public financing, the first to get my signatures in to petition for the ballot within hours. And so the people are behind me. We've just got to make sure they know there's an election and make sure they vote. And we know that is all tied in together. So we are out hitting the ground. We're raising the money. We're doing the work to elevate the voices. And I'm quite confident that we will win. This is a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. If you're in the audience, why don't you raise your hand and in about 10 minutes time, you can ask Leslie Herod a question of maybe what she's going to do when she becomes the mayor or if she becomes the mayor of Denver in April. If you listen to this podcast at home, one of the ways in which you can get onto the podcast is by downloading the Clubhouse app. Download the app. And quite simply, then you can be part of one of the live recordings on Clubhouse of one of the podcasts, which means that you can actually hear yourself on the show. If you're in the audience and if you are at home, I beg you do, please write us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best and the easiest way for Mid-Atlantic to get more listeners. If you do nothing else other than if you are in Denver, obviously vote for Leslie Herod. The other thing you can do whether you're in Denver or not, is to go and post a positive review for Mid-Atlantic. Mid-Atlantic is about primarily open dialogue and communication. Leslie, a few more questions from me before we open it up, because we do have a few people actually on stage now. Under Hancock's final budget, he allocated $250 million. And some of that is with federal funds to oversee, to try and combat, sorry, the homeless problem in your fine city. Why has homelessness come to plague Denver? And what will you do about it when you become there? Absolutely. This is one of the toughest challenges and biggest issues in Denver right now. Our city is being besieged by encampments. Homeless folks, our unhoused neighbors are living on the streets in trash. It is not it's not humane. It's not compassionate. We've got to get people housed. The mayor's budget is one step in the right direction on that, but there's a lot of bureaucracy. We have to get out of our own way and build housing, build social housing for people who need it, period. Denver actually owns the majority of the vacant lots in our city. We could actually move and move from having encampments pop up everywhere to getting people into housing that we build for them. And we should do that right away. And so for me, we look at these federal dollars, the state dollars that are pretty much once in a generational opportunity because of COVID, we have the opportunity to do so much and we're sitting on our hands and not doing enough. And so that's something that we will definitely be prioritizing in this city. But additionally, we have to make sure that we get people help. We can't just move people in housing and think that's going to solve the problem. And they need access to good mental health care. They need access to good substance misuse care. They need access to jobs. 
to work. And those are all things that we need to focus on in a more comprehensive way. And so when I think of the mayor's budget request, it's in the right direction. But man, why did we wait so long? We have seen the rise in encampments since the COVID pandemic. And what we have said as a city and this administration has said is that the thing that we need to do is is ban camping and have sweeps. The camping ban was placed in, in was put in place in Denver and it's failed policy because what it's done is it's basically moved and swept encampments from one place of the city to another place of the, of the city, further and further into our neighborhoods. We're just moving people along, but they have nowhere to go to. My administration will take a different approach, which is ensuring that people have access to stable housing. 90% of people living on the streets in Denver right now want to be in housing. We could make that happen. Crime statistics available through the state of Colorado show that violent crime has been on the rise in Denver since 2014. What will you do to keep the streets safe? Well, everyone deserves to be safe in our communities. We know that. And Denver used to be one of the safest cities in the nation. And now we don't feel that way anymore. We don't feel as safe. And a part of that is the epidemic, the, the increase of folks who are addicted to drugs like fentanyl. It is scary out there right now. And street drugs, traditional drugs that we've seen on the streets in the past, are now laced with fentanyl. It's killing people. It's causing psychotic episodes. We've got to get it off our streets. But that doesn't mean that we incarcerate ourselves out of addiction, right? Instead, again, it means that we get people access to help. But we also have to make sure that our systems as a city are working. People are waiting on hold for five to six minutes when they call 911 as their loved ones are dying. That is unacceptable. Unacceptable. Carjackings are up in our city because no one is investigating the crimes. 90% of cars in Denver, when they're stolen, are actually recovered. But no one's investigating to break up these rings or to figure out who's stealing these cars and how we can bring justice to the victims. And so these are things that we'll all focus on. We've got to make sure that our law enforcement is, yes, the best trained, yes, has the resources they need to respond to crimes that are happening. But we also have to pull them away from non-criminal offenses like our unhoused issue, people camping, and get people the help that they need. Do the DPD have your confidence? Do you think that they'll be, they're basically behind your campaign? That is an interesting question. I will say by, start by saying that my dad is law enforcement of 30 years. He's, I know firsthand what it's like to be a family of a law enforcement officer and to watch as my dad decided to stop wearing his uniform home every day because he didn't want people to think that he or know that he was uh, law enforcement in our communities. That is terrible, quite frankly. People are afraid of law enforcement in our communities because we've seen what happens when bad actors go terrorize our communities and then be not never be held accountable for their actions. That is a problem, and that is a problem that's also being faced by people in Denver. Do I think that FOP or that DPD will endorse my candidacy? I don't know. I don't know. I doubt it. But what I know is that we have worked in partnership on some of these large issues like STAR, like Caring for Denver, banning simple possession of drugs my entire career. And it will be work to build that confidence, but that is the work that we have to do. It's not easy being a mayor, period. It's not easy being a mayor of a city that's at a turning point or at a crossroads, but it is the job and our city deserves someone who's willing to do it. Last question from me before we throw this out to the audience. Mayor Michael Hancock is term limited, so he's actually leaving. What's going to be his biggest achievement? What's going to be his biggest legacy, would you say? He's had a tough, a tough career, I would say, as mayor. He was mayor through this pandemic, very tough time, through the protests, through the summer of reckoning, as I call it. And so he has had a really uh, difficult time as mayor. 
I believe that some of the things he did early on in the administration are ones that my administration will actually adopt. And that includes making sure that we reprioritize the prioritizations of the city, make sure that city employees are actually well-resourced and staffed, they're well-staffed, making sure that we've got the right configuration to do the job of the city. Right now, we don't because we're not apt enough, adapt enough to build affordable housing where we need. We're not able to address our unhoused crisis, even with hundreds of millions of dollars of resources and infusion of cash. And so for me, it's really about starting over a lot in a lot of areas and saying this is no longer working, assessing and saying this is no longer working for the people of our great city. And we've got to do something different and we've got to do it now. So that'll be my focus. I lied when I said just one more question for me. I've got one more question now, Leslie. What didn't he address? What's the one thing that we should have to put your finger on, which uh, this mayor, who was mayor for 12 years, didn't address in the city, which you are most definitely going to write that wrong? I think relying on the camping ban to fix our homelessness crisis in Denver was a mistake. It only politicized people on house neighbors. And so that is something that I will do differently. I will do differently. And we will make sure that we are addressing this crisis in, in a compassionate way. I also think he let the homelessness crisis go for too long. The fact that we have so many encampments, we have so many people sleeping on our streets, it is unnecessary. It's unnecessary. We did not have to just continue to turn a blind eye. In fact, we should be beating down the doors out in Washington, D.C., asking for more housing vouchers, getting people into housing, building more housing right now. We do not have to wait. And we are. And so that that has been something that has plagued the city. And I think lack of action will be will be something that my administration will have to turn around from the audience. Welcome, Philip Denver. Philip, you actually from Denver. Yeah, this is interesting. This is utterly fantastic. All right. So, Philip, what's your question to Leslie Herod, mayoral candidate, a front running mayoral candidate for the city of Denver? Yeah, I think the first thing I was just ask, are you did you vote? I take it you actually voted to do bail reform in Denver in 2021 through Colorado, I should say, in Denver. In 2021? It basically was it was like in July of 2021. Which law was it? Oh, the Colorado misdemeanor reform bill. Did you vote yes for that? I did. Okay. And the criticism, which I actually think is fair, which is it's actually incentivized basically the police arresting people and letting those people right back on the streets. I've experienced this personally. Like we've had two Cadillac converters stolen from us out of our front driveway. We've had no response mm-hmm. from the police officers. And when we do respond and ask them to investigate, we've basically been told uh, this is happening all over the place, which is, that is true. But at the same time, a lot of, <laughs> we actually have a camera the same person that stole our first Cadillac converter came back and stole our second. And the, I guess what I'm going with on this is that we found out when we talked to the police officers, one of the reasons they're not really investigating these is because they're not being prosecuted when they actually do find these people because of this bill that actually took took part. And they have bigger fish to fry is what we've basically been told out of the police department in Denver, which does make some sense on one side is if you can't prosecute these people, then it's not really worth stopping the crime. So I guess for me in asking that, would you reform that bill that you signed at all, the Colorado Misdemeanor Reform Bill, or do you see it just as a positive for the state of Colorado? So the misdemeanor reform bill, there's a lot of misnomers around what that bill did. And I will tell you that in in shift meetings with law enforcement, they are being told to say this because they're trying to influence policy at the state level. But what the reality of this, of what is going on, you touched on as well. The police are not doing their jobs. They're not investigating these crimes. It is not their job to prosecute. That is the job of the prosecutors and the DA's office. And so 
it is really important to note that these low-level misdemeanor crimes that we change with that bill would only put someone in jail or in actually in Denver jail for at the most 18 months, but likely much shorter, likely just days. And so the fact that there's no investigation and there's under-policing happening right now is why car thefts are up, catalytic converter thefts are up. I just had a meeting with the chief of police just recently, the new chief of police. He talked about how cars are getting stolen out of our airport every single day. And he's asked the mayor for more resources to stop the crimes from happening in the first place. And the mayor has said no or not responded. That's a problem. That's a problem. And so when we have, these are rings, by the way, this is organized crime happening in Denver right now, which is a felony offense. It is not a misdemeanor, but no one's investigating it. So we actually can't break up the organized crime rings that are happening. They are stealing catalytic converters. And says yes, the same people. They are stealing cars that are worth more than $2,000. They are stealing Maseratis, quite frankly. And it's organized crime. And that is something that when properly investigated, we can break up these rings. Uh, And so for me, a priority is making sure that we have more investigators in Denver right now. Right now, the DPD is at about 35% of, of a vacancy rate right now, 35%, which means there is no one to investigate those crimes because the investigators are on the streets. That's what's happening right now. And what we need to do is shift that. And working with the chief of police, we've had these conversations. We've got to get more investigators in so that people don't call you and say, we just can't do anything about it. Because if they did something about it, that person then wouldn't go on and steal the next catalytic converter and the next catalytic converter and the next one. But it is a ring. It is organized. We know that and we can break up these rings. Next question is you, Bree. Hey, and I want to say thanks so much, Leslie, for coming in and for it sounds like Monique and Robertfield both for, for facilitating this. Leslie, I have a two or three part question, so I hope it's OK and feel free to address this as you will. I'm not a local of Denver. I'm somewhat familiar with the situation there, and we're dealing with a similar situation in the Bay Area. I'm in California. And one of the biggest barriers to dealing with issues like the unhoused and several of these other issues around reforming different measures is nimbyism. For people not familiar, that's the whole not-in-my-backyard phenomenon where people talk about wanting to help, talk about wanting to solve, talk about wanting to deal with these issues, but then when it comes to putting it near them and to affect them, they fight. 10 times more vociferously. I'm curious if you have any suggestions, strategies, plans on addressing this kind of NIMBY phenomenon, these very progressive areas that in spirit would like to help issues, as you already mentioned, like homelessness or even crime, but then they don't want to put in the work when it comes there, if there could be any risk. And the second part of this is a lot of times when it comes to politics, I find it extremely difficult. And it seems like this is the case when there are candidates that have ideals they'd really like to do that I think would make the world better. But politically, it's very challenging to work with others who might, as you've already hinted at, be more entrenched in that revolving door of lobbying, fundraising, making sure they get elected, making sure they can get that kind of revenue. And then there's all the sorts of corruption that goes along with that. And for those people, it's often more advantageous to do the interests of large corporations, big business and large donors, obviously. How do you compromise to work with those people without compromising yourself? I will just say that it is difficult. This job, like I said, is hard. But I want to be clear that I've done that work. So when I passed the Police Accountability Act, I had no opposition from law enforcement because they were at the table negotiating the entire time. 
with stakeholders, with community activists was at the table negotiating this bill and depoliticize and take politics out of it and say what happened in Colorado. Those bills were all passed, including the one that was mentioned by the previous caller in a nonpartisan way by people who initially were not going to come to the table. And so that is what I do. That's what I do best is by bringing these partners to the table. And your first question ties into that as well, which is how do we bring NIMBYs to the table with YIMBYs to build more housing in our neighborhoods? And my answer is we have to go neighborhood by neighborhood. But the one thing that's so interesting and unique about where we are in Denver right now is that the entire city thinks that we need to build more housing. And the entire city believes that we need to actually build more housing in each of our neighborhoods. And so that's really fascinating. We have a flash ban moment right now where we could do something very quickly and get the support of many in our communities that would be louder than the opposition. We've got to do that. We've got to capitalize on that. Quickly, because I think what the point that Brian made, which you're addressing, is absolutely core to the homeless problem in America. Mm-hmm. The way that the UK is structured, if dare I say, we don't have the same amount of local democracy. So NIMBYism is a thing in the UK, but it's not as powerful as it is in the United States. So why is it, do you think, that there is an overwhelming desire of people within Denver, and you said in, in many neighbourhoods, actually to have low cost housing in their neighborhoods because that fundamentally depresses people's property values. So why is it that Denver is so different? Why is this opportunity in Denver in a way that there isn't in somewhere like San Francisco? Well, the answer is it's actually quite easy. It's because our neighborhoods have become places that have been so exclusionary that grandparents can't live next to their grandkids anymore. It's that simple. Kids are moving out with the rest of their families outside of Denver because there's no affordable housing in the city for them to start their family. We're talking, you can't even get a two-bedroom, one-bathroom house in Denver and afford it right now, much less for a small family. We need to have more diversity in housing stock in each and every one of our neighborhoods, and people agree with that. And we have too much vacant land right now that's not being used for anything. Why not build on that land? That land is owned by the city and county of Denver. And so people are ready and willing to have this conversation because our neighborhoods have changed so much that people don't even recognize where they live. Gotcha. I can't remember what Briar's first question was, but maybe your memory's better than mine, Leslie. It was about that yimby nimbyism and really about talking to the core of people. Oh, that was it. How are you not going to be corrupted by, by lobbyists and whatever? You said you've done the work, so you've answered that. So... Briar, we're going to come back to your third part a little bit later. Denise Hamilton, good friend of mine on the app, what's your question for Denver's next mayor? For Denver's next mayor, Leslie, such a pleasure to meet you. You've been a breath of fresh air. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I do not live in Denver, but I am obsessed with the next generation of leaders in our cities. And as we are enjoying this incredible technology shift. We're seeing chat GPT, we're seeing the rise of AI, all of these different tools juxtaposed against a profound homelessness problem, a profound training and skills development program of our workforce. How do you see a leader's responsibility in braiding new technologies into city management? And um, how do you plan to access new technology to address these problems that seem to be getting worse on the other side of new technology. Yeah, 
This is a very good question. And it's one that some folks might feel in the weeds, but it affects people every day. Because if we don't have the jobs, because we're replacing them with AI, we're going to see more of these problems in our cities, right? We're going to see it increasingly become more unaffordable for families. We're going to see more people becoming unhoused or even turning to drugs because they can't work. And the answer of just having a, a more skilled workforce is not the answer. And so I think we have to be really strategic and thoughtful about not only when we use different advances in technology, including AI, but also how we look at the taxing of those types of services in our cities and who gets to benefit from the technological advancements. And so how are we making sure that people are still getting their needs met? When we talk about things in this country, and I know it's very different overseas, and if you're not working, you don't have access to healthcare. And so what are we doing to make sure that the big companies that are coming in to places like Denver are taking care of all of us in our cities while they're also making huge profits from the people that live here. And so we've got to think of new models when it comes to when it comes to AI, when it comes to replacing people with technology. Do we think we could ever come to a place, Leslie, whereby AI would replace the need for even a mayor? Fundamentally, we just throw a whole load of problems in, into chat GTP and it says, hey, you sort it out by doing it this way, that way and whatever, and it just gets done. So would AI even make your position redundant maybe one day? No, I don't think so. Just I still want a barista at the coffee shop to say hi to me every morning. So no, I don't think so. In fact, there was, an, there was a candidate who didn't make the ballot who basically had all of his responses generated by a bot that he created. And it became quite milquetoast pretty quickly and lacked heart and lacked soul. I do not want to live in a city without a soul or without a heart leading it. And so no, I do not think that will be the day. So even though majority of the time we touch, roll our eyes when we hear politicians talk, we actually still do like a good retail politician, press the flesh, kiss babies and ultimately knock on our doors. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. That soul, that heartbeat, the fact that we are real people, we make mistakes too. And we learn and we grow from them. I think that's really important. Thank you so much. All right. Sherry Maple, what's your question? How, I might as well continue with the, the the housing problem that you have in Denver with people being unhoused. So my question becomes, you have vacant lots and you build the housing, but I'm thinking also the other services that these people will also need, right? I think about mental health services that they may need if they have disabilities, what that would mean would you build housing in a different way for them to have access because they are disabled and the all the other services in addition to the housing problem because yes we want them to have housing and we want them to be able also to stay in that housing so other than just building that what else do you envision for this extension of this issue that you have that's my question, and I'm done. Thank you for your question. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to jump right after this. I have to. I have a debate tonight. So this is really goes back to the work I've done with Caring for Denver, providing that mental health and substance misuse services for those who need it. We have about a $40 million annual spend that we're able to do in Denver, and that's without money from the city. And so we are able to invest in making sure that people have all of those services access to mental health care, access to good quality paying jobs, access to eviction protection programs. 
that keep them from getting evicted in the first place. Not after they start the eviction process, but before. Those are things that we really need to invest in and fund. And that's all a part of a social housing model that I know could work and will work right here in Denver. And so thank you all so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to coming back if you have me. Good luck tonight. Good luck. Good luck. Kill them. Thank you. I will absolutely have you back, Leslie Herod, and thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic. If you're in the audience, one way you can show your appreciation for for the house is to quite simply join the house if you haven't done so already. Quite simply go up, click the Mid-Atlantic text, join the waitlist. If you join the waitlist today and you type in Leslie Herod on the question, basically I'll expedite your membership. We do have a waitlist. I am being a little bit pernickety about who I actually let in, but fundamentally people are in the room who want to join. If you jump on that waitlist, you will be let in. Mid-Atlantic is a program which is very dear to my heart. Many people on this app do know that I produce a whole panoply of podcasts. But America has actually been good to me personally. It's the reason why I have a 10-year visa to be in America. I'm a proud Brit, but I'm here studying America and American culture. And I'm very grateful for that. And this podcast is somewhat homage to that. Please join the house. If you're listening to this at home, you can send me an email where I'm royfield at gmail.com. It's R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com. You can tell me where I'm going wrong and tell me that I'm a liberal hummus eating a fat elitist and that I need to have my stages balanced by having more right-leaning thinkers. And I say to you, put them in front of me and they will come onto the show. If you want to blow me some flowers, you can also do that as well. Today is my clubhouse anniversary. It's my second year on this app. This app has been very good to me. I've made friends. I've met many people who are actually in this audience physically. And also I've even made got clients from this app. Clubhouse is a wonderful social media app. If you listen to this at home, load it to your smartphone and come join us on Mid-Atlantic. Mid-Atlantic is all about conversations across the Atlantic between left and right. I'm Royfield Brown and I'd like to say thank you to Monique for helping to facilitate this conversation and also again thank you to Leslie Herod for joining us today. Also thank you to Philip Denver who is a good citizen of that fine city or Philip from Denver I should say for his question to Briar B who is a stalwart of this app. And there's great rooms called the Debate Dojo. You need to follow him just for that. Denise Hamilton is definitely one of the doyens of this app also. Thank you, Denise, for your question. Also, Sherry, a thank you for your question as well. That's been me, Royfield Brown, speaking to Leslie Herod, put together by Monique. Take care, look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.